0: You're listening to the Bible Teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out, of the, out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Beginning of each year, it's pretty typical to take inventory of our lives. Individuals, families, organizations, even churches ask themselves the really difficult yet necessary questions like, Who am I? Those big questions like, Who am I? What am I? What are we? What makes me me? What what makes us us? The question is, like, how do we answer such a simple yet big question like that? Who am I? Typically, a pretty good indicator of who we think we are is found in the way that we introduce ourselves to others. Where do we go with the conversation after we get through the exchange of names? Where we typically steer the conversation is probably a pretty decent indicator of what we feel defines us as we put our best foot forward. Where many of us go is work, what we do for work. Where many of us go is what we have done in our lives, our achievements, our our schooling, and that sort of thing. Now, I've actually had the benefit of being forced to learn new methods of explaining who I am when I don't initially want people to know that I took a gap year and then another gap year and then about 13 gap years in between there. And now later in life, like started back at, uh, you know, online school. Thank you, Chris Kimball, for validating our existence. <laughs> Ivy League material here, guys. Or uh, that I have five kids. You don't, you don't want to just come out of the gate with that because people are going to look at you like weird. Especially They're going to look me up and down real quick and they'll be like, you're definitely not Mormon. <laughs> you don't drink and cuss enough to be Catholic. So there's got to be something wrong with you right now. Okay. I'm just kidding, you guys. I drink and cuss all the time. <laughs> um, yeah, they're, they're going to they're gonna look at you like you can't control yourself. You're like adding to this chaos of our lives. And I definitely can't leave with I'm a pastor. Way to kill the mood at a dinner party, <laughs> like telling someone you're a pastor. It's as if I have special insight into uh, Santa's naughty and nice list. Maria, I've, I've heard about you. Tough break with the relationships. Mm. I heard you're up to your ears in debt and you haven't been to church in decades. You're a horrible person. So typically that conversation goes, "Hi, I'm Christian. I'm a pastor. Oh nice, Nice to meet you. I'm going to go pretend uh, to talk to this person over here. I'll, I'll take a call. that sort of thing. So there are a number of places that we look. We look to our work, we look to our relationships, we look to our finances. Uh, We look to our successes. We look to our achievements. Or so the dark side of that coin is that we look to our failures. We look to our hurts. We look to our disappointments. We wear our wounds. We wear our brokenness. We wear our losses. See, the 21st century saw the rise of what has been uh, coined as the narrative identity, which is a person's internalized, evolving story. See, in prior generations, if someone lived a significant life, if they were a significant figure, the people around them would encourage them to look back at their lives and write an autobiography and state for future generations who they were, factually who they were, and what they accomplished. But today, we live in a strange world, or at least a strange portion of the world, where everyone is encouraged to write their own story. Everyone here is encouraged by the world, by our culture, to write their own story. And now, it's not from the perspective of looking back, but more like from the perspective of anticipation. It's as if we've been called to be these secular prophets. Tell yourself who you are. Tell the world who you are. Show the world who you're going to be. Write your own truth. Write your own story. Well, we got, we got away for a few days up into a cabin up in the hills, and there was a little stack of books, and there in the books was a book on motivational quotes, little short quotes. And this is one of them. If you don't win, listen to the small voice in you that says, you're a winner. Listen to that voice that says, despite the fact that you lost, you're a winner. But why should I trust that voice? Why should I listen to that voice, the narrative identity? This also corresponds with um, another recent development, and it's the new midlife crisis. Typically, in the past, the midlife crisis was a male in their 40s or 50s that had this sort of existential crisis, and they grow a mustache or get a tattoo or buy a Harley or something like that. But today, midlife crisis is something that is experienced and showing up in the experience of young men as early as their 20s. And also in women, somewhere in their 30s and 40s, that that, that existential crisis moment, that that identity crisis of like, who am I? The question is why? Why is this happening earlier in life? Why is this happening across the board, whether male or female? It's because men and women are realizing that the story that they've been telling themselves for so long just didn't come true. They're coming to grips with the painful reality that the self-defined life, with all of its promises and all of its sexiness and all of its, you know, whims of adventure in the long run leads to disappointment and disillusionment and regret. The emotional pressure of this endeavor to self-define is crushing. What this leads to is an emotional ebb and flow. Maybe some of us can associate with that this morning. Insecure about ourselves, insecure about our existence, insecure about our identity because for so long we have tethered our identity to false hopes. Because for so long we've tethered our identities to things that come and go. But listen, God intends something far better for us. Michael Reeves said, we can know a far greater assurance anchoring our identity in firm ground outside ourselves in Christ. Christians are people who have given up all claims to both our badness and our goodness, and instead gotten him. See, it's important for us to remember, especially at the beginning of the year, that we are not a self-defined people within a self-defined community, but we rather are a God-defined people within a God-defined community. And Christians are those who by faith tune their ears to hear the voice of God breaking open the heavens, rending the heavens, and cutting through the noise, and cutting through the fears, and cutting through the insecurities, and cutting through the lies, and cutting through all of that noise. Believers are those who receive his words of love and power as the final verdict over our lives. Some things to note about this passage in Mark, the first of which, if you're taking notes, is this. Identity is received, not achieved. Identity is received, not achieved. Look at me in verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. This would have been sort of a jolting arrival to read of in the first century. Jesus receives this royal pronouncement. For the Jew, they would have heard hints of Psalm 2. You are my son, today I have begotten you. This is the royal king. This is the one that was promised. And really, actually, to both the Gentile, Gentile and the Jewish reader, uh, they would have been looking for two th- specific things. They would have been looking for credentials, and they would have been looking for pedigree. And they would have been asking questions like, you know, what does this Jesus accomplish to make, uh, make him the son of God? What, what, what family is he from, you know, that makes him the Messiah? Where does he come from? Nazareth? See, uh, the gospel writer John records why this would have been so strange. In the early uh, days of the ministry of Jesus Christ, John records this Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him who, who Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come from Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. We found Jesus of Nazareth. That's like saying, we have found Sean from Stockton. <laughs> and the world's saying, wait, um, Stock, Stockholm? No, Stockton. Oh, can anything good come from Nazareth? See, this would have been the consensus. We've got, we are dealing here with a nobody from a no place special. What makes this person someone? Make, what makes this person somebody? And yet, listen, God's booming Declaration comes over him, you are my beloved son, I take delight in you. Now think with me how different the story would have been if Hollywood wrote this story. The story would begin with the big question mark, what does God think about Jesus? And then we would get the life. And then we would get the ministry and the miracles and the kicking demons out and making the blind see and and healing and setting free the oppressed and obeying and dying and on the third day rising from the dead. And then then, right there at the conclusion, at the very last moment, we would be thinking to ourselves, what does God think about all this? And the heavens would break open and God would say, you know what, son? I am pleased with you. And all of us who have been trying our whole lives to please our dads with all those wounds we would say, the credits would roll. It's really important to grasp that Mark's, Mark intros Jesus' life in ministry like this. For you college students who are just joining us back here today, we are only one week into this thing. We are only nine verses into this very long narrative, and here comes God's pronouncement at the very beginning, which tells us this the pronouncement comes before the performance. God's pronouncement comes before the performance. God loves him. God delights in him. God accepts him. God treasures him. Listen before Jesus does anything. Before Mark tells us of Jesus doing anything. Everything that we're going to read of in the book of Mark is going to flow out of his identity. He's not driven by guilt, like some of us. He's not driven by that impulse to earn favor, like some of us. He's not stepping into that endeavor to become someone. He has received that eternal pronouncement over him. You are my son. This is who you are. This is how I feel about you. Now, one question that we have to kind of think through is, really that the scene brings up, is why is Jesus getting baptized? This is kind of odd because John is, John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. Mark's already told us that. So why is Jesus coming down into the waters if this is a baptism of repentance? Because last time I checked, Jesus is without sin. Jesus is the spotless lamb. Zero compromise. Zero sin. Perfect holiness. Perfect obedience. And so no sin, then there's no need for repentance. If there's no need for repentance, there's definitely no need for baptism. What's he doing? One explanation is that Jesus is receiving the baptism of repentance on behalf of the people of God. Jesus, in this moment, is actively stepping into this beautiful exchange process. As he steps into the water, it is a significant portion of Jesus' incarnational ministry. Jesus identifies with us in our mess Jesus identifies with us in our brokenness. Jesus identifies with us even in our sin, standing with us in baptism and ultimately later dying for us and in our place on the cross in order that we might be identified with him and seated with him in glory. The Apostle Paul would describe it like this later in Scripture. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Christ takes upon himself our broken, tainted record of unrighteousness. And he exchanges it and gives us his record of righteousness. So that the accomplishments and the holiness of Jesus Christ is applied to our record. To our lives hidden in Christ. Seen through the very eyes of Christ before the Father. The son would get what the sinners deserve so that the sinners would get what the son deserves. The good news of the gospel is that for those who trust in Jesus Christ, who place their hope and their identity in him, we get his conclusion as well. What's true of Jesus becomes true of us. When you come to Christ simply by faith, no matter who you are, You were given a new identity. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. The old has passed away. Paul would say it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in faith, I live by faith rather in the Son of God who died for me. It's no longer me. It's Christ in me, a new identity. This is my beloved daughter, God says. This is my beloved Son. I am delighted in you. Full stop. We would expect the yes, but. We would expect that this is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased if the gospel, full stop. So let me ask you a question today. When you think of God, and when you you think of what God thinks of you, how does God feel about you? When he thinks about you, what does he think? What does he feel about us? For probably many of us, we think that he is just totally displeased with us. Totally disappointed with us. Yeah, yeah I may be saved, but he is simply tolerating my presence. My son, my daughter, in whom I'm well pleased. Brendan Manning said define yourself radically as beloved by God. This is your true self. Every other identity is an illusion. So every single one of us come here today probably with something that we've attached our identity to. Some things are true things. You may be a doctor. You may be a teacher. We We also attach our identities to our hurts or our wounds or our sins or our lifestyles or whatever the case may be. And I love these words. Define yourself radically as the beloved of God. This is your true self. This is the truest thing about you. Every other identity is an illusion. Every other identity is just simply smoke and mirrors. This is the substance. Uh, Now, I've told you about my phone notifications that send throughout the day. Have I told you about those? Okay, some of you. Um, So I get these phone notifications throughout the day that tell me some things. Um, And as I've shared before, um, at the end of each day, I get the pronouncement that Christ made upon the cross. It is finished at 5 p.m. I am um, tempted to carry the weight of the world upon my shoulders and this simple statement reminds me that Jesus already did. That I can, I can put up my work or put down my work because Jesus took it upon himself. I can actually, like there's a moment in my day where I can say I am finished knowing what Jesus has accomplished for me and what Jesus has accomplished on behalf of the people around me. It is finished. But there's another reminder I receive uh, throughout the day And it sends uh, every workday at 8 a.m. Any guesses as to what it says? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well-pleased before I begin my day, before I do anything. Why? Because every single day I am tempted, maybe you can associate with this, I'm tempted to prove myself. And I am tempted to make myself something to attach my worth and my identity and my emotions and my meaning and my purpose and my everything to my accomplishments or sometimes my failures. And I need that reminder that identity is received, not achieved. Identity is received. The second thing worth noting this morning is that identity is proven in the wilderness. Identity is proven in the wilderness. Verses 12 through 13, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals and angels. The angels were ministering to him. So this is interesting. The same spirit that descended upon Jesus Christ in this glorious scene at baptism, now, according to Mark, immediately drives him out into the wilderness. One would think that this pronouncement of God would drive Jesus into a totally different direction. That would drive him to Jerusalem, to the throne. I am a child of God. I am the son of God to settle into the good life. I've heard that. I'm a son of the king. I'm a daughter of the king. That means I live the blessed life. Live in my best life now. But the story Jesus tells us is that receiving your identity does not spare you from difficulty, if anything, please listen, it brings you into it. The the places that you are trying to avoid, maybe because you think that you deserve better now as a Christian, the places that you are trying to avoid could actually be the very places that God is intentionally leading you, that the Spirit is intentionally driving you. See, the timing of what's going on here is very strange in two ways. One, that God's declaration of delight comes over Jesus before he does anything. But secondly, that the wilderness comes directly after this. Directly after this. Why? And the simple answer is this, that baptism is where identity is declared. But the wilderness is where identity is proven. Identity is declared in the waters, but identity is proven in the wilderness. So I've got this little tradition to read through um, some of the sermons of Dr. King on MLK Weekend, uh, compiled in a book called Strength to Love. And I was reminded this weekend of this famous quote. The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy, So what we know is, this had a very specific context for Dr. King, but what we do know, also know, is this has sort of a universal application. The real you is revealed in the wilderness. There is no use trying to define who you are and trying to answer big questions like, who am I in times of comfort, in places of ease? That you is easy to be you. The real you emerges in the wilderness. The real you emerges in the times of controversy, in times of challenge, when the pressure's turned up. The wilderness can take on many shapes. It can be an internal struggle, times of repentance and facing our demons as we battle the flesh, as we battle the uh, the devil through prayer and solitude and fasting. Uh, The season of Lent, which is going to begin in March, will lead us down that path where Christians do this crazy thing intentionally go into the wilderness with Jesus, intentionally subject ourselves to difficulty internally so that we can prevail in victory through Jesus Christ. Or it also can be a season or a place of external pressures. You could be in that wilderness moment where you have not taking yourself there. You've just been driven there. It is totally outside of your control. There are things in your life, whether it's relationships or financial, it has to do with work, it has to do with school. It's just these external pressures, the wilderness around you. So how do we know when we're there? How do we know when we're in the wilderness? Well, it's actually the place that you are confronted with your weakness. You will know when you're coming close to the wilderness when you become keenly aware of how weak you are, how needy you are, it's where we become entumbed with our own hungers and our own wants and our own desires, good and bad. It's the place where the illusion of control over our lives is stripped away. Where God says, "You think you're sovereign?" Hmm." It's the places that, apart from God, as I mentioned last week, apart from His intervention, we perish. As it's been said before, the wilderness isn't a random detour. And I think for some of us, we view the wilderness moments like that. It's just this thing I got to get through. It's just this random detour on the the course of life. But as someone has said, actually, the wilderness is the battleground. It's not just a random detour. In, In fact, it's a destination along the way. As we look back at the entire story of Scripture, what we see is that the wilderness seems to serve as the staging ground of God's future deliverance and God's future defeat of evil. It's where things are prepared. It's where God gets things ready for something big. Where God intentionally takes us, those of us who follow Jesus, those of us, those of us who are in relationship with Jesus so that our identity is tested and proven to be true. See, so you, you know when you're in a relationship with someone when their fight becomes your fight when their drama, in a sense, becomes your drama, when when you take and share each other's burdens, when you realize that there's this moment where you're like, we're in this together. And in a sense, this is inherent to Christianity. There are things that come into our lives for the sake of Christ. Paul would talk about the fellowships of Christ's suffering. The Apostle Peter would write this, if you are ridiculed for the name of Christ You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That is a paradigm shift. For the one that suffers is blessed. The wilderness, whatever that may be, the trial, the temptation, the struggle, the challenge, the ridicule. These are not signs of God's rejection and displeasure with you. According to the scriptures, it is actually his seal of approval that the spirit of God and of the God of glory rests upon you, that that same spirit that came down upon Christ in the Jordan now rests upon you, that you're part of the team, that you're in it with Christ, that you, by God's strange grace had been welcomed into the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, it's no coincidence that Mark mentions this, uh, these wild animals. I, I remember reading this for the first time. I was like, this is a weird mention. Like, wild animals. But at the time of penning this gospel, the first wave of damnatio ad bestius, or, or the condemnation by beasts, was sweeping through the Roman Empire where men and women were being because of their Christian faith, were being thrown to wild animals to be brutally killed. So no doubt, these readers, something would spark in these readers' minds. These readers who are being pressed because of their Christianity, who are being tempted to walk away from their faith as as they're facing the trial of their life. And now Mark reminds them of Jesus who has forged the path before them. Who has stepped into the who has willingly stepped into the wilderness and found victory so that we could too. Christ emerges with victory so that we can as well. Now, Mark doesn't give us we talked about this last week. Like Mark is the gospel for the on the go. Uh, over 40 mentions of the word immediately. Mark is taking a beeline in a certain direction. So there's not a lot of detail here in Mark about this wilderness experience, but we are able to lean on the other gospel writers that actually record some of, the, some of what happens. For instance, the gospel writer Matthew tells us this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came, and were ministering to him. So the third and final thing, if you're taking notes this morning, is this. Identity is sustained by the voice of God. Identity is sustained by the voice of God. Now, one of the challenges of having a lot of kids is learning to distinguish between their voices. Now, as they get older as they all sound like okay well anyways so as they get older it's a little bit easier but it's still a challenge there are still times where one of my kids will call out to me from across the house you know needing something or asking for something and then I you know say well who is you know who needs help and they'll say it's me as if that helps me right and then I'll I'll say yeah but like like but who is asking And then they say, I am. (laughs) And then there's this moment where I'm like, oh my gosh, you're really going to make me do this. Okay, what is your name? (laughs) Oh, it's Levi, duh, or like Amelia or whatever. It's important to know whose voice we are hearing. The more I am with them, the longer I'm in relationship with them, the more familiar I become with their voices. I learn their voices. I learn their cries. Sometimes I can tell who's coughing from You know, the bedroom or that that sort of thing. And I begin to hear those nuances, the differences, where now to this day I, I can with decent accuracy tell who's speaking. This really is the necessary challenge of the Christian life. This is key, so please pay attention. The necessary endeavor of the Christian life is to learn through intimacy, to distinguish between the voice of God and other voices we are faced with a barrage of voices on a daily basis. So when we hear the voice saying to us, achieve, earn your reputation, do something to become someone, we can know that is not the voice of God. That's the voice of this world. That's the voice of the pressure of this culture. Or when we hear a voice saying, you're a failure, you're a disappointment, this is all you'll ever be, you are never going to be anyone. We can know, wait, that's not the voice of God either. That's the voice of my guilt, that's the voice of my shame, that's the voice of the accuser of the brethren. Or when we hear the voice, the same voice that Jesus heard. Hey, I've got this shortcut. Listen. Listen. I've got the shortcut to fame, and glory, and pleasure, and it's not even going to require obedience, it doesn't require sacrifice, and you don't have to take up your cross. We can say, wait, that too is the voice of the enemy. The battle of identity will always be a battle of truth. And it has been since the very beginning. In the garden of Eden, the serpent comes to Eve and plants the seed of doubt. And here it is. Did God actually say? Is that actually what God said? Are you sure about that? And again, here in the wilderness, the enemy tries to break trust in the words of God and really attempt to plant the seed of doubt again. And so if the battle for identity is a battle for truth, what we need to know as Christians is that our greatest weapon will always be truth. Truth of who God is and truth now of who we are in Jesus Christ. Notice two things about what's going on here. First, every temptation is an attempt to undermine identity if you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God, do this. And notice secondly, Jesus' response to every temptation. It is written. Again, it is written. For I tell you, it is written. It is written. It is written. So, how do we know who we are? How do we know with confidence who we are? And it's not through proving ourselves, and it's not by convincing ourselves, and it's not by listening to that inner voice, and it's really nothing in and of ourselves. Here it is, here it's key. Jesus says, it is written. How do I know who I am? It is written. We look outside of ourselves, we look outside of our experience. Now I find something interesting about this this whole thing here. Even Jesus himself who experiences, like this is an amazing scene here in the waters of the Jordan. Even Jesus, who experiences the booming voice of God declaring who he is, does not lean on his own personal experience, but continues to go back to the book. So if it's not too good for Jesus, it is not too good for you. It is written, it is written, it is written. Learning to distinguish the voice of God, the one that pronounces life, and love and power over us means that we are immersing ourselves in God's word. What does God think about me? What does God feel about me? It is written, having this pronouncement shape us, letting that voice, you are my beloved. I am well pleased with you. have the final verdict over our lives. As I mentioned in the beginning, We are not a self-defined people within a self-defined community. But we are a God-defined people within a God-defined community. And Christ is that glorious word over us. Amen? Amen? Let's pray.